You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Karen Joy Fowler is the author of Sarah Canary and the Jane Austen Book Club. Thank you for joining me, Karen. Thank you. Karen, one of the things that that I really like about your work, you have this great tool that you use so well, ambiguity. (laughs) (laughs) It's so kind of you to call it a tool and not a mistake, an oversight. Well, well, tell me, in in the story you, you read, this evening, the last orders. Um, one of the things, it uses ambiguity to me, at least in a very intriguing manner, because you lay out this whole history like we're supposed to know it, but <laughs> it, it's completely invented. And, and I really, it, it, it's interesting to me that, that the way you do that and hold it out in front of us and say, this is real, but we know. It's not real. I think um, I've I've been told that my stories frequently have an effect, which I don't. I'm not necessarily aiming for, but I apparently often achieve, which is that sentence by sentence, they're completely clear and utterly easy to understand and decipher. And yet, when you get to the end of them, you apparently have no clue what's actually happened. Uh, at least I've been told that a lot. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that because I, I really felt that I knew what, what, what had happened. But there's this kind of a, a, a feeling, and you do this in Sarah Canary as well, where we both know and don't know. We know it's real. We know it's unreal. Could you maybe talk about the way you, especially in, in the, the last orders, where you use, create a, a sense of the fantastic that is at once very fantastic, but totally mundane. Wow. Um, I, do, I, I, I don't know if this will answer your question or not, but I, I do feel that the kind of ambiguity that I, that I do aim for, and apparently the ambiguity that I achieve in, even when I'm not aiming for it, that it, it does, that it that it's not a fantastical element in my work as I see my work that it that it is realism um, to me that um, that the world as I experience it is one in which knowing what actually happened at any given point in time is very problematic and depends very much on who you're talking to and whose version you're hearing at at the time, and that's that certainly um, my experience in small and large ways. That you know, I, I have a, a pretty vivid memory of um, sitting at the um, at the at Thanksgiving dinner with my parents and my brother, and reminiscing about something that had meant something to me, and sort of finishing my story and looking around the table and having my mother say. Um, you know, that was not when we were in Indiana. That that was long after we moved to California. And having my father say, I don't think it was summer. You know, it seems to me that that was really at Christmas time. And having my brother say, 
and I don't think it happened to you. I'm pretty sure that happened to me. And, and just realizing that even where my own memory was concerned, that apparently the ice was very slippery. So um, one of the things I, that I frequently believe and say when people ask me about my attachment to science fiction or my um, experience in science fiction is that the world that I experience is, um, it, you know, with my actual senses, is not a world that realism is actually very fitted for in my mind. And, and the, the easy example I've been giving for a number of years now is that any world in which um, Arnold Schwarzenegger can become governor of California is just not a world that the tools of realism are appropriate to in any way. So that, so that in some um, honest way, I am trying to, to show the mundane world as carefully and as accurately as I can when I get wild and ambiguous. One of the things that, that interests me in your work is the way you create a, um, a, a web of, of characters and interrelationships and perceptions that seem suspended above the things they're describing so that we see them in an almost pixelated way, which I think goes with the, the story of your family as well. I um, could you try to explain that to me one more time because I'm not sure what you're saying. <laughs> well, well, you have a although I like it very much. <laughs> you have a variety of characters who will tell different stories about the same events and seem suspended above those events, and everybody's seen those events from a different perspective. It, it, as I say, it's like a web of, of characters, yes. who, and you create this uh, for you, even. People almost seem to be science fictional constructs. Yes, I think that's that's lovely, well put, and very much the way I feel. And I and that is an effect uh, uh, and a message that I'm very very fond of. And it, I think it's one of the reasons that I'm attracted to omniscient narrators, um, although my omniscient narrators rarely know everything that's going on either. But I, I love to, you know, pause for a moment in a, in a scene where two or three people have been talking to inform the reader that what one person is thinking of is th as they're talking is this, and that the other person has completely misunderstood and believes that they're talking about this. And, um, or, you know, to just to sort of finish a dinner table conversation by going around the table and saying, this is what this person is thinking of, this is what this person is thinking of, this is what this person is thinking of. Um, so I, I think um, Molly was talking during the evening about her interest in, in people communicating with each other and, and in the ways that people talk to each other. And I think that I am, I am interested in that, but that my particular interest is in the ways that people misunderstand each other. And the the the, um, the things that c can occur um, or not occur is because one person believes they've made their point, and the other person, in fact, has not gotten that point at all. You were describing that dinner scene, and it it made me think. Uh, you read Gormenghast? Years and years and oh, years I, ago. I don't a, remember. There's a spectacular scene where they're all sitting around dinner and, and you get every character's point of view and, and the, 
it ends with the Lord of Gormenghast who's going completely crazy and thinking about the owls spinning above. <laughs> yes. I, I was thinking. I bet that I have read that scene, <laughs> and I bet I was very struck by it. Um, the other thing that, that is interesting in, in your work is and about you is bookstores, reading, love of reading, uh, the, the part that reading plays. And the reading experience is a really interesting experience because it, in a way you seem to almost, the way you create characters is almost an analog of, of the reading experience itself. How do you mean? Well, when the way you create these characters kind of suspended in webs, when we read, we immerse ourselves in this world and we're kind of looking above it or driving through it. And, and that disconnected, when we plug into a book, we, we unplug from reality. And, and your characters seem somewhat unplugged from whatever reality they might think they're sharing. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that... Um, I think that I, you know, that I, that my books are, that that my stories are often about reading and uh, about other people's stories and about our attachment to other people's stories, and just just on a very practical, functional level, when I am creating a character, I almost always start with a story. Somebody has told me a story about something that happened to a friend of theirs. You know, I don't know the friend, I don't need to know the friend, uh, but something about the story will catch me and I'll, and I'll start thinking about what kind of person would do that or what kind of person that would happen to. And that's almost always when I'm starting a book, uh, the way I begin to create a character. I think somebody at some point has told me a story and I, and I create a character around some event, some, something that... Um, that obviously has very much appealed to me. In my most recent novel, um, the main character began with a story I was told years and years and years ago. Um, my cousin told me that a uh, girl at her high school, and she lived in Ventura, still lives in Ventura, California, that um, after, after the prom night that she drove her date and the family car out onto the sand and um, became busy in the car in uh, some very engrossing way because the next thing they knew um, the car was beginning to rock and the water had actually come in and they had to flee the car in their prom clothes uh, through the, the tide and then find a phone booth to call her parents and tell them that they had lost the family car. <laughs> and uh, as I said, you know, I know nothing about the actual people, but the charm of the story is incontrovertible. So I've thought, I've loved that story for years. And when I sat down to create this character, that I started thinking, okay, she had this experience. Who is she? What you know? What kind of a person does this happen to? When I was listening to your story tonight, uh, the dialogue was just dynamic. I, I loved it, and I, I have to ask you, do you? like eavesdrop on people's dialogue? I eavesdrop constantly, yes. I love it. And uh, and in almost everything I've written, there will be something that I just heard, something that you know comes completely from the outside of the story that, um, uh, again, in the book that I've just written, um, I was sitting in a movie theater and two women came in and took the seats behind me. We were waiting for the movie to start. And I heard one of them say to the other, um, 
she doesn't sparkle. And the other woman said, you sparkle. And the uh, woman who'd begun it said, oh, you sparkle too. So I, I have my character walk past the women who are having this conversation in my book because I just am charmed by it. But I actually, I think that I do have a good ear for dialogue and I have, a, um, I have my own idea as to why that is, which is that I have been nearsighted since um, second grade and for most of my life, I was too vain to actually wear glasses. So I went through most of my formative years unable to see anything around me. And, um, and when I sit down to write, I actually have to work very hard at visuals because none of that is easy for me. I, I, it's a very conscious effort to try to remind myself, to, you know, describe things, describe things, describe things. But I think I've just, I've lived off of my hearing for my whole life so that dialogue is easy. We've been speaking with Karen Joy Fowler. Her latest book is the Jane Austen Book Club. Her forthcoming book is? Wit's End. And it's coming out in April it's of next year. It's coming out in April, yes. Thank you for joining me, Karen. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.